Beloved listeners, can you imagine a greater honour than to be described by war criminal Henry Kissinger as the most dangerous man in America? He was speaking of my next guest, the legendary whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg. Listeners with uh, mileage on the clock might remember my last interview with Dan uh, and... uh, We talked a bit about the files that became known as the Pentagon Papers. They exposed the lies of successive US presidents and ultimately helped end the Vietnam War. And ironically, given the subject of our discussion today, we talked a lot back in 2003 about the parallels between Iraq and Vietnam, or rather the deceptions that saw us embroiled in both conflicts. When I introduced Dan last time, I described him as a guy who'd lived history, made history, and it's a miracle that he's not history. And those words remain applicable. Dan has many a feather to his cap. These days he's a lecturer, scholar, author, and what I consider his biggest feather, a staunch defender of other whistleblowers and the right to freedom of speech, to the extent that uh, Dan testified at uh, Julian's extradition hearing back in 2020. Now, in the light of the ongoing horror story, I wanted to invite Dan back to talk about the parallels between the two cases and why the extradition of Julian would pose such a significant threat to free speech across the world. Dan, it's a pleasure and a privilege to have you on the program once more. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a wonderful introduction. I, I love your description of my description by Henry Kissinger as an honor. Of course, that is true, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I haven't thought about it. But uh, Julian Assange, I'm sure, would be regarded as most dangerous man in the world when he was releasing his papers back in 2010. And he would undoubtedly share that honor now with Ed Snowden as most dangerous man in the world. Before we push on with Julian, I wanted to mm-hmm. take the listener back to 1971 and to your own mm-hmm. extraordinary efforts because, uh, well, the Pentagon Papers were so important and you risked life imprisonment to publish them. Remind the younger listener what they were. The Pentagon, so-called Pentagon Papers were officially called a history of U.S. decision-making in Vietnam from 1945 to 1968, the end of the Johnson administration. And uh, incidentally, starting that history in 1945 would itself be a revelation of a secret to most Americans because then, and probably now, they don't realize how deeply involved the U.S. was in making decisions as early as 1945. They think of the U.S. involvement as being in the earliest at 61 under JFK Kennedy or 65 when Johnson, both presidents that I served, by the way, um, sent, and Johnson sent troops into Vietnam, but actually the decision-making, as the Pentagon Papers' top-secret history showed, uh, involved supporting the French from 45 and 46 on in their efforts to reconquer a former colony that had declared independence, Indochina, or Ho Chi Minh. And uh, from an American point of view, that was not a just war. 
Uh, it wasn't clearly illegal under the UN Charter, which regarded sort of colonial status as having some legitimacy. But from an American point of view, we've been taught that ours was, you don't usually use these words, but the first war of national liberation, it was a, it was a war of independence from an empire. And we didn't think of ourselves as an empire at that time, wrongly. I learned better later. But uh, in fact, helping the French reconquer a colony had no aspect of uh, legitimacy from the point of view of American values and the American Declaration of Independence Constitution. And in other words, it was wrong from the start. And when I read those top secret documents, uh, and by the way, this study was 47 volumes, 7,000 pages, each one marked top secret sensitive. And the sensitive meant politically sensitive, potentially very embarrassing or incriminating, and not to be shared even with most people who had a top secret clearance, uh, like the president. They weren't anxious for the president to know that this study existed in the Defense Department because the people doing it were afraid that he would burn it, that he would uh, block it. So the sensitive was on hold this tightly. And in fact, the president uh, wasn't told. It was quite disconcerted when it came out in the New York Times, to which I gave it in 1971. I had given it the study to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in 1969 and gave parts of it to other members of Congress before that. But I finally gave it to the New York Times in 71. And when they were enjoined for the first time in American history that there was an injunction against a newspaper to keep it from publishing information to the public, prior restraint, as they called it, uh, when that stopped the New York Times from publishing, and I gave it to the uh, Washington Post, they were enjoined. Eventually, four papers were enjoined when they finally gave up because, in the end, I gave it to 19 newspapers, and they really couldn't stop it. The Supreme Court ruled eventually that uh, it was clearly against our First Amendment to the Constitution, freedom of the press, to have this prior restraint to keep the public from getting this information, having looked at the information and what it involved, and that it did not jeopardize, in it. it was no imminent threat to American lives or security. So the publication continued, but I was prosecuted, indicted, ultimately facing 12 felony counts for a possible 115 years in prison, which, as you say, would have been a life sentence. Uh, Julian Assange is actually charged now with 17 counts, pretty much the same as mine, with one exception, which would add up to 175 years, also a life sentence, although he's uh, younger than I am. I think it's, so, impo uh, I think it's important for the listeners to know <laughs> that you weren't coming from the ultra-left. You had an impeccable credentials. You were, well, you worked not only for administrations, you worked for the Rand Corporation. You had, in fact, at one stage, uh, been in the military yourself. You'd been a fighter, a warrior. Yes, I was, uh, I was part of the fact that I was a company commander or a rifle company commander in the Marine Corps, uh, the only first lieutenant in the 2nd Marine Division to have a rifle company for some months. So that was a high point of my professional life, not only then, but uh, looking back on it, a wonderful period. But I had been a Cold Warrior, essentially, as a consultant from the Rand Corporation and then in the government at the highest civil service grade in 
the Pentagon and then in the State Department in Vietnam. So when you say impeccable credentials, well, impeccable as a servant of the empire, which I didn't uh, see at the time, didn't recognize. And I look back on that as not being my best service <laughs> to the country or to the Constitution. You also worked on a hypothetical uh, nuclear war scenario, but the fact yes. is that you saw yourself as, and you still see yourself as a patriot, and I'm sure you've never had any regrets. No, that's both are true. Uh, when you say impeccable, you, you could just say, I was a patriot in very conventional terms, and that would still be true, except that it's now very clear to me uh, over the last half century that uh, an American's duty is to the Constitution, your oath is to the Constitution, and not to the president or to secrecy. Something that's uh, coming up in terms of the January 6th hearings and so forth. It was necessary to remind people in the government that they really hadn't taken an oath to uh, Donald Trump. They'd taken an oath to the Constitution, and nearly all of them were breaking it regularly. As I, looking back on it, I was breaking that oath uh, when I kept silent about what I knew were lies to the Congress by the president about uh, the reasons for a war and the prospects of a war. Both of us, Dan, you and I have met Julian on a number of occasions. Do you think he was motivated by the same ideas and ideals as you? Well, to start with, uh, he's never had the privilege of being a citizen under the First Amendment, and that does remain of you know, the U.S. He's not an American. He's an Australian. And it so happens that I just looked up minutes ago, actually, uh, on Wikipedia, whether Australia had an official Secrets Act, as in Britain, which we don't have formally, having fought a war of independence in part to get the First Amendment which bars a British-type official secret act. So what's been happening over here is that, starting with Nixon and his prosecution of me, presidents have been using our Espionage Act, which was intended for spies who give information to a foreign power, especially in wartime. And they've been using that as if it were a British official secret act which our Congress, in passing the Espionage Act back in 1917, uh, made clear in their discussions in Congress they did not want a British Official Secrets Act, and they claimed that they hadn't passed one. But the, uh, the, the, the executive branch now is doing the experiment, and so far pretty successfully, of claiming that uh, Congress had, after all, passed an Official Secrets Act, in the form of an espionage act. And the problem there is that Julian Assange, if he were extradited to this country uh, and prosecuted and convicted, it would be an unjust case, uh, unjustly tried and unconstitutionally applied, as was true in my case, but much more clearly in his case as a journalist. His is the first experimental use of that act uh, against the journalist. And if he were extradited and convicted, he would be uh, a precedent for other journalists. And uh, speech about crimes and deceptions and wrongdoing by our government could be concealed on penalty of criminal sanctions. Um, 
as is true in Britain. By the way, as I understand in 2015, uh, the article I read by, I think, Philip Dorling in, Dorling in the uh, Sydney Herald said that no journalist in Australia, unlike Britain, no journalist had been tried under this. And the article implied that uh, that might cease to be true in Australia. Uh, but I, I hope it isn't. But that well, means Dan, that the, the, the sad, uh, the the sad, case, the sad yeah. truth about Australia is to this point, there has been no public advocacy for Julian at top level. We've now got a new Prime Minister and we're hoping that he's working back channels to try and save Julian from his, his predicament, but uh, no-one has been looking after him. Well, I was uh, happy when I read Julian's father, John Shipton, another Australian, uh, expressing encouragement when there was a new government because uh, Prime Minister... Albanese, as I understand, had said as a member of the opposition that he thought the case had gone on long enough, in fact, too long, uh, should be ended. He implied that uh, he thought the case should be dropped by the U.S. And to have him as prime minister in a position to speak from that position to the U.S. president seemed very encouraging. But some months have passed, and I, what I just read this afternoon uh, in preparation for this, it occurred to me to look up what was happening in Australia with respect to Assange. And um, there's both good and bad news. I was very encouraged to see how many people in your uh, legislature were now supporting uh, Julian and saying that the case was wrong, that it was an outrage, that, that he should be freed, he should come home to Australia. I think uh, more than 25 have taken that position in the late, but not in several parties, not only in Labour, but in Greens and others. That was good. But then uh, the answer to the Prime Minister's office and, and himself on what he was doing uh, to carry out what he had said earlier to John Shipman and others, that he would do what he could to uh, get Julian out of this uh, outrage, really, this persecution that he's been following, is not encouraging because he keeps referring to his statement that um, he thought the case should be ended. Well, there's two things here. On the one hand, his position is the case should be ended. It's gone on too long. Well, the U.S., I'm sure, and Biden would say, yes, we agree very much. He should really give up his appeals and let's get on with this so he can come back here and face the music, uh, which is uh, the music is kind of a death march here in this country. <laughs> and then the question is, what can he do? Well, he says he's in favor of uh, discreet Backdoor diplomacy, that sounds fine. But by whom? At what level? What are they actually saying? Has he or will he raise this to President Biden himself when he sees him? There's really no indication that he will uh, ruffle his relationship to the U.S. at this point as, as president, a but, prime minister. But, Daniel, but Daniel, might he not get a good hearing from Biden? Biden's no Donald Trump. Well, <laughs> on this issue, uh, Biden has really continued the policy of Trump. Remember that Biden was vice president under President Obama when the Obama Justice Department, having deliberated at length about whether a prosecution of Julian Assange would be consistent with our First Amendment, decided it would not be. They did not indict him. But 
at that time, Vice President Biden described Julian as a high-tech terrorist, which is absurd. Uh, you know, that his, his truth-telling should be equated to terrorism. But um, then, he came, then he's become president. And it was hoped that Biden would uh, follow the footsteps of the Obama administration. But on the contrary, an official carried over temporarily, I think, from the Trump administration and the Justice Department, renewed the appeal for extradition, which he didn't have to do. They could have just dropped it. He could drop it now, and that's what he should do. But uh, Biden so far has continued, as you say, in the footsteps of Trump on this, which is ominous for free press and free speech in this country. I'm talking to the man described by Henry Kissinger as the most dangerous man in America, none other than Daniel Ellsberg. Daniel, can you explain to me why the charges against you were dropped? They were dropped basically for reason of government criminality against me, identical to what has been revealed by uh, the then head of the CIA, then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, had done culpably against Julian Assange. Namely, there's a case going on in Spain, I believe right now, or has gone on, which has revealed that uh, a security service in, in Spain was used by the Ecuadorian embassy in London to carry on totally illegal surveillance of Julian in the Ecuadorian embassy uh, clandestinely. The information of that went to CIA, among others, of his conversations with his lawyers, with everybody who came in, and with his doctors, even medical evidence. Nothing was uh, private as far as he was concerned. Now, that revelation that uh, burglars on orders of the White House had gone into my former psychoanalyst's office to get information on me they could use to blackmail me into silence. That information was uh, a crucial part of uh, dropping the charges against me after an almost two years in court. But there was another aspect to it. Some of these same people, CIA assets from the Bay of Pigs, who were still working for the CIA in, in some cases, and others were working for the White House with orders at one point to incapacitate Daniel Ellsberg totally. And when I asked the special prosecutor, well, what does that mean? Kill me? And he said, well, the orders were to incapacitate you totally. But he said, I have no doubt that the intention was to kill you. Now, in the case of Assange, we learn that there were discussions in the U.S. in intelligence circles to kidnap him from the embassy and or poison him, to kill him. Now, as I say, revelation of these, you know, which, as my judge said, was uh, not terribly sympathetic to me. But at the end of the trial, he was saying, this is a pattern of activity that offends a sense of justice. And he dismissed charges. Well, of course, it does the same for Julian. Obviously, when this came out, it should have been investigated by Congress and the executive, and the case should have been dropped. And that should happen right now. And by the way, uh, this is something that uh, Prime Minister Albanese could mention to his friend Joe Biden in the course of something. Is he willing to in any way suggest something to the president of the United States that Biden doesn't really want to hear? 
Well, that remains to be seen. But the labor supporters of free press here uh, in Australia could confront Albanese and his own party or in the other parties with saying, well, if you don't do this, uh, you'll pay a price here. So you have to balance those. Uh, it's the only way, I think, that Julian has any prospect of getting out of what amounts to solitary confinement, which he's been in for years now, in Belmar's prison, three years, and uh, for him to live, I would say. The only way is for Australia to, say, bring our Australian citizen home. It's good to know that uh, Nixon's attempts to, uh, well, have you incapacitated in one way or another, led to his own downfall. But going yes. back to what you describe as, well, the implications of the Espionage Act, you've said, in fact, as recently as 2020, if facing the same circumstances today, you are certain you'd be convicted. <sighs> So far uh, now, as I say, my case is the first precedent here for prosecution, and uh, people have been concerned, especially because in my day, the Supreme Court was almost certain to find the Espionage Act used against whistleblowers informing the American public as an unconstitutional abridgment of freedom of the press, a violation of the First Amendment. Obviously, the current court uh, can't be trusted to read the Constitution the same way. And so you have a real problem there of what the conviction would be. But when I say it would be an, not a fair trial, and that's true of all the people who have been convicted, I mean that in our act, there is no public interest defense. There is no ability to testify to the jury as to why you did what you did and what and who you did it for and what the prospective impact was. In my case, I was the first to be asked the question, simple question by my defense lawyer, why did you copy the Pentagon Papers? Objection, says the prosecutor, you know, irrelevant. And the judge upheld that. And that's been true ever since. That's not a fair trial. That's a trial that's uh, perhaps... Uh, okay for a spy who has uh, doesn't have a very good defense as to why he gave information to a foreign power secretly in wartime, let's say, to hurt the United States. But to a whistleblower who is clearly risking their career and their job, their, uh, their livelihood at the very least, and since my case, prison, uh, is doing this in order to inform the American public of something they feel uh, needs to be known, not to be able to tell the jury why you did it and let them judge whether they thought your case was, was good or not, is clearly not a fair trial. Let's go back to this issue that extradition might extend the U.S. Uh, jurisdiction. We're talking about offences that weren't committed by a US citizen, weren't committed on US soil. This has enormous implications for us. It means that any journalist in the world, anywhere, uh, who publishes information that the US regards as classified, and may I say, as someone who was in that system for more than a dozen years, I can say that most of what is kept classified, more than a year or two or three, is kept classified to avoid embarrassment about crimes in many cases, deceptions, wrong estimates, foolishness, wrongdoing, embarrassment. 
in a broad sense. And that's why it's classified. Uh, the presumption should not be that something that's, uh, that's classified is kept secret because it would harm the national security of a democracy like the United States. That's not the truth. Okay, so any journalist then who puts out this information, like Assange or like Catherine Gunn, but she was putting out information uh, in England, both about U.S. Uh, intelligence estimates to get blackmail information on every member of the Security Council, and as she said, pursue a wrongful and unjust war by unjust means, she said very well. Okay, she would be a target then for extradition to the U.S., for having put out a U.S. secret. By the way, I, I just thought of that, frankly. I pulled Catherine Gunn, whom I admire very much, uh, that name out of the air. But it is true. She revealed not only a British secret, but a U.S. secret. She would be just as subject as Julian Assange for extradition if the U.S. had thought of that uh, earlier. I want to read a paragraph by uh, another friend of Julian's, and that's uh, an Australian lawyer and advisor, Greg Barnes. And I quote, extraterritorial reach of laws is generally thought to be stretching the idea that the law of a nation only applies to those who aren't citizens or who allegedly commit crimes in territory that is governed by that nation's laws. To seek to extend the reach of domestic laws to those who have no legal connection is anathema to the rule of law. Daniel, why do you think the attitudes of the public and the press seems different towards Assange as to what you experience? Because generally, people have been grateful and respectful to you. Well, remember what he's being charged for is uh, basically what he revealed in 2010, a dozen years ago, that had been given to him by Chelsea Manning, who did spend seven and a half years in prison before she was, uh, there was clemency there. She got out of prison. But uh, not for anything later. Now, one aspect that was different is that what Chelsea was revealing and Julian was revealing through a number of newspapers was what the U.S. was doing to foreigners. And uh, I'm sorry to say, I think Americans are not different in this from other humans, other citizens, but they're much more concerned about what the U.S. does to its own citizens. And in my case, for example, uh, you know, criminal actions against me as an American citizen than they are to the torture that Julian and Chelsea revealed that we were participating in in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan. So I think that that makes a difference. Also, in recent years, uh, Julian made journalistic judgments in 2016. He's not being charged for those. In 2015, uh, that is very possible to disagree with politically. In fact, I disagree with them, a number of them politically. But they're not, that's not on trial now, and it wouldn't affect uh, my standing anyway. If I were totally opposed to them politically, I would say that freedom of press rests on this extradition and this prosecution being dropped. But I, I, I'm very interested in that quote. In fact, I wish you'd send me that link, uh, if you would, that you just made about the uh, anathema to the rule of law, because isn't that an argument that Australia might well have made in this extradition hearing? Might not Australia have pointed that out, or is it too late to do that right now? 
In general, what do you think is the importance of whistleblowers in democracies? Julian isn't the only Australian whistleblower who's been treated wretchedly in recent years. And what about what's going on? It must have a chilling effect on those who might think about speaking out. Oh, it's already had that effect, which is uh, is an attempt. Uh, in my case, uh, being tried, facing 115 years, was meant to be chilling, but then the charges were dropped for in this special case of criminal misconduct against me. Uh, so the chilling effect wasn't so obvious for really for another 20 years. There was one case in between that, and then Obama brought uh, nine cases and tried in Trump even more. So there's a new precedent there, which is already, is already just having to go through the trial is obviously very chilling. Uh, what, however, it comes out, I must say, I think the main objective of the U.S. at this point is to set a new precedent against a person, by the way, under a new Supreme Court, which we've just seen operate this year, very conservatively, that's a euphemism for reactionary, but um, also uh, a person who has forfeited the uh, well-wishing of a lot of Democrats in particular because of uh, his choices, journalistic choices, years later in 2016. So he's, he's a perfect subject for him, and they would like to set a precedent here of uh, essentially rescinding the First Amendment on classified information, which comes out every day as of now, really chilling that. I think this, they've already kept him in prison for years now, so that's very chilling. I think their fallback would be to have him die in prison. I think that's really where this is heading, uh, whether in a British prison or uh, an American prison. After all, that, that may sound very hyperbolic or, you know, terribly uh, accusatory. You're talking to someone, me, who had a dozen CIA assets brought up to Washington to incapacitate me personally and totally, totally was the word. So when I say that I think they're willing to see Julian Assange die in prison as a second best to actually convict him, uh, I think I'm in a position to make that judgment. And on that ominous note, we must end our conversation. Dan, thank you so much. I've been talking to Daniel Ellsberg, scholar, author, activist, and of course the bloke who blew the whistle on US government lies about the Vietnam War. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak uh, to an Australian audience because I must say uh, my hopes for the First Amendment here and for Julian personally rest on Australia acting in support of his rights. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.